Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and today podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we are presenting another bonus episode dealing with coronavirus. There's so many ways COVID is impacting our lives, and we're here to bring you another data-driven discussion to assess you in this pandemic. And while normally we're heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Today, we have a two-by-two episode, two co-hosts, two guests, and they are oncologists, cancer specialists. We have doctors Felix rodriguez Benero and Ron Sobex. And Dr. Felix is a medical oncologist in Boynton Beach, Florida. He's also the founding president of the Palm Beach Physicians Guild of the Catholic Medical Association in the Diocese of Palm Beach, Florida. And Dr. Ron Sobex is a member of the National Catholic Medical Association in the Archbishop Fulton Sheen Guild of Northeast Ohio. He is a hematologist-oncologist at the Cleveland Clinic, and his practice focuses on blood and bone marrow transplantation. Felix and Ron, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you for having us. So, gentlemen, so Felix is more of a... Uh, a general practice oncologist, where Ron is more in an academic setting. So first, uh, to you, Felix, how has your practice of medicine changed in the last two months compared to the previous years of your career? Well, it's certainly been a learning curve. Um, For starters, our visits have decreased about 30 to 40 percent, I would say, uh, to the point that at some uh, regards at the beginning of the pandemic, we were thinking we're going to have to cut back on on our salaries. Uh, One thing that we had to do was to let go of our staff that was there part time. And we've also had to cut back on hours. Um, We still get daily cancellations, even though it's, what, six weeks into this. Uh, there are patients that are postponing appointments till June. And uh, one thing that I know that we'll talk about later is we've made a switch to telemedicine, something I had never done before. <laughs> so that, that's been, as I said, a, a learning curve. Uh, one thing uh, that uh, has been important is that many of our patients have been very apprehensive about not only coming to the office, but also going to the hospital for uh, things that we say you need to be there because there's no other way that we can help you. So um, the challenge has been on the physician end, on the nursing end, and particularly the the patient end. How about you, Ron? Yeah, I share um, Felix's, uh, some of the uh, thoughts that he brought Fourth about tele, telehealth, they're again, it's something I have not really done before. And so this has become a, a wide part of our practice. And my, my specialty with uh, blood and bone marrow transplantation, people with leukemia, is Felix says some of these people absolutely have to come in. So they still do come in. Our inpatient service, I wouldn't say drastically declined because the folks are up there for a month for their care. Um, but what has drop for them is they're not allowed to have visitors often when you're in the hospital for a month that they're it's a stressful period and to have your family with you is a a, a tremendous uh, asset and and that's been taken away abruptly uh, to to limit the potential exposure for folks on that floor but in the outpatient setting uh, they're going to that too has markedly reduced uh, in terms of uh, people still coming for transfusions periodically but our big lobby I might see six or ten people in the whole lobby so it's, I think there's more people in the supermarkets than, than in our <laughs> yeah. outpatients uh, so it's, it has really become a, a, a drastic change. 
Now, I've got a question in regard to the volume. Uh, and Felix, you, you had mentioned volume being down. Is this driven by the patients primarily apprehensive uh, about their treatment? Or is any of this intentionally postponed by the, the physicians? Because that's one of the things that I've been trying to figure out from different areas of practice. I would say uh, there's a double uh, or several other factors, but the patients at first and other things that have been happening is the delays of biopsies, delays of surgeries. So many cases where we felt, okay, well, you'll come back after the biopsy has been done. And well, no biopsy, no appointment. Uh, for instance, uh, we had issues with the hospitals not doing uh, non-emergency scans. Uh, the outpatient facilities were doing it, but not the hospital. So again, another thing like that. Uh, hopefully now that Florida will open the non-routine, or actually the routine procedures, then we'll get that volume come back up. But yeah, I don't know if that answers fully your question. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, you know, one of the things, uh, Ron, you had mentioned with your service kind of being about the same, I know some of the hospitals around here have reported lower volumes. Have you guys seen that where, where you've been working as well? Yeah, I, I think certainly in the uh, in our uh, cancer center, it's uh, the volumes are down 30% um, just in this short six-week period. So it's, uh, as Felix mentioned, now that they'll be opening up, at least in Ohio too, since the curve is sort of flattened with the incidences lately, at least uh, as of Monday, uh, elective surgeries and things like that, or you know, cancer-related things should in uh, other surgeries, of course, so that we'll see what impact that has, because as Felix was alluding to, that for people, if you're going to eventually get to your oncologist for chemotherapy, you need to have the surgery often done beforehand, or even things like radiation. These are frequent outpatient appointments that are just uh, sometimes getting postponed for a little while. And how about, uh, uh, well, oh, one thing I remembered learning about Cleveland Clinic, and maybe you can corroborate this. Last week, we talked to Mike Parker, who used to work at uh, Cleveland yep. Clinic, yep. and he said that there were a hundred and some employees from Cleveland Clinic um, who had contracted coronavirus, and when they did the contact tracing, not a single one of them caught it in the institution. Are you familiar with that? Yes, that's that's absolutely true. We, we, there's multiple calls we have throughout the week, and it, so it is each of those cases were felt to be contracted for the community. So I think there again, that's one of the things as uh, Felix was alluding to that some of the patients have this fear coming in and you try to relay them. But frankly, it's, it's been a pretty safe place in, in general because of the high uh, uh, precautions that people that's are taking. That's exactly the point I want to make to our listeners. There might be no safer place you can go than to a hospital now. So please get your care. Don't delay longer than you need to delay. Another question I want to ask the two of you, because uh, our practice had never done telemedicine before, and we've done it. So what has been your experience with telemedicine? Felix? Uh, as I said before, it's been a learning curve. Uh, the younger patients have uh, adopted it very well. Uh, the situation and the stumbling block has been the elderly patients. They have the smartphones, but typically they don't know how to use them well. <laughs> the phone's smarter they than the patient. A, I know, <laughs> they don't have a family member, a young family member next to them. Uh, usually I make the appointments and they tell my staff, yes, we have a smartphone. And then when I start with them, uh, oh, doctor, I don't know how to do this. And so I have to switch the, the appointment to just phone. Uh, and, uh, and, and the other thing, uh, 
and, and I don't know if you're gonna ask me this later, but I have found that, especially when I'm talking about serious issues, uh, it's not as simple, particularly again with the elderly. Uh, they are, they need more of our uh, non, uh, the, the cues that you can do, not just on video, but just the face-to-face -face interaction in person. And uh, I can give you one example. We, we had a man that was definitely not fit for more chemotherapy. We had a hospice discussion and that had to be done via the telehealth. And that was rather difficult for him, not for the family, not for the daughter, but for him that was rather difficult and, and so adapting that, um, I know that you mentioned on one of the other shows that uh, the medical students and residents were needing some training on telemedicine. I yes. think we physicians uh, already in practice need that training also. Ron, your experience. Yeah, I think uh, also it was a learning curve for most of us. We fortunately had a, a really good IT team that put people through a lot of different uh, sessions to, to, to become a little bit more efficient with it. But I think the, the beauty I, I, I found is that sometimes I could be in multiple places. I could be in the hospital. I, I could be in my car and I could stop and do a televisit. I mean, it was incredible. <laughs> that, not that I do that often. I did it one time in a parking lot for someone, but, but it really was instead of having to run to my office, get my white coat and make it down to the clinic, which is not like right around the block. So from, from that angle, efficiency wise for me, it's, it's been a sort of a little bit of a, a, a good thing, but I think, like Felix said, I think there's something to be said for this, and especially in oncology, this gift of presence in the room, and not necessarily for people just dying, but you, they have some rough things they're going through, even if you have curative therapy, and, and to know that you're not alone. And I, I do think it, it's sometimes not, I don't want to stigmatize just people who are elderly, because there's a lot of younger folks, too, that, that just that presence uh, goes a long way. But I, I think if we can just still take the time, however if we have uh, less time from running than building the building, that time can be used wisely with patients uh, to, to have good quality time and be compassionate. Do you guys think that if insurances were to allow telemedicine to continue, that this would have a home in your future practice going forward after the pandemic? I really think so. Uh, what we've been trying to do on our schedule uh, is trying to cluster all the telemedicine visits uh, we've been trying to do that for Fridays in particular or for the end of the day. Uh, and uh, uh, going back to the same question that you posed to one of your guests uh, last week, uh, I am hoping and I am hopeful that the medical organizations uh, and also the powers that be in the government continue to allow the, the, the reimbursement for these interactions. Because I think for some patients that would be helpful for, for simple things. If we're just discussing labs or discussing uh, things that are not that uh, significant that would require us, Ron says the Ministry of Presence, then those things will be, uh, will be more efficient as we get used to them. You mentioned the Ministry of Presence. You know, there's a, a physician writer named Abraham Verghese, and uh, he's written about the importance of the ritual of the physical examination. I've seen this with my own patients, like if I do skin cancer exams, and when I even check their lymph nodes, some of them just say they just start to melt just because, you know, I'm touching them in a, in a very personal way. That's part of the exam. What do you think is lost in the physician-patient interaction especially with oncology patients, when you can't touch them. Ron? So to, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think there again, um, 
there are some conditions like, uh, uh, you know, it, it's just that it, part of establishing that historic relationship with a doctor and patient, you're, just, you're in the same room. And it's, uh, it, otherwise with the telemedicine, in some regards, there's that distance, like just watching a doctor on TV, you know. Um, so there again, uh, you, you can appreciate the knowledge passed on, but you, you don't uh, actually have that uh, same, uh, at least for many people, that, that, that bonding, if you will, at least especially early on. Some of our folks that we've known for many years, it's just like maybe I'm calling my, my son for a, a Skype visit or something like that. So you have that well-established relationship. But I think early on, um, it is very important for many people and, and physicians to, to be the, together. And, and, and not only for the patients, but their families. But I, but I, I think for physical exams, of course, I, I can't palpate someone's spleen over the... Over the uh, <laughs> I can't I, I, palpate I, their spleen when they're in the room, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> I can look at their blood count, so I agree with you. Okay, Felix. Yes. Uh, so uh, to echo what Ron is saying, not only the physical exam, but there are things that uh, the that being in the same room, um, and and the physical exam, as you will say, some patients, uh, if if I've forgotten some part of physical exam, doctor, you're not going to listen to my lungs. You're not going to listen to my heart. Uh, and, and they do crave that, even though uh, it's a visit to just talk about the test results, uh, talk about the spleen again. Uh, sometimes we can get a better uh, look at the spleen, quote unquote, by, by the CAT scan or ultrasound. But yet, they, uh, it's part of the classic medicine to do the physical exam. And, and there is something that's lost. Pretty much, uh, I, I also always joke about the electronic record. One of the things that I miss about the paper record is that I cannot remember uh, the patients as well because I'm not writing that that connection uh, mind and body and I think something like that is happening with telemedicine uh, there there is some some organic component and I would dare say spiritual component that is lost by by the remote evaluation so I think a basic question people think of is, wow, cancer patients, they must be at increased risk for severe COVID disease. Is that true? It depends on the case. So uh, one of the things that uh, I uh, was mentioning to my lymphoma patients in particular, they, they, they already have compromised lymphocyte function. And as you know, uh, the defense against this virus is with the lymphocytes uh, in particular. So, and, and some chemo agents will cause lymphopenia. Um, I don't know Which what means Ron's a decreased number of lymphocytes in the blood <clears throat> for those listeners that don't know what penia means at the end of a word. <laughs> Ron, your experience on this. Yeah, I think uh, as Felix and I were talking the other night that, that uh, some of our folks there, again, they, they, this is, I sort of joke that the rest of the world is getting a faint taste of what our transplant and leukemia patients go. They, they're on these precautions all the time. That's a great I, point. And in addition, it's just, we're just dealing with one virus, COVID. These guys are wide open to every pathogen in the world out there. I mean, bacterial. And as our director of our leukemia program said, you know, frankly, some of these folks coming with a very aggressive acute leukemia with a white count of 200,000, that's far more lethal than COVID. They can be dead in hours or within a, in a day or two if you're not treating it. And so they typically do succumb if they don't respond to therapy to bleeding or infectious complications. So... The challenge, of course, with COVID is, yes, they may be more prone. We have not seen any in our, our patient population at this point in six weeks that we know of, um, uh, that certainly is a fatality. 
But I think there again, um, just with like influenza, some people can get an influenza infection and typically you'll see a secondary infection like a pneumonia on top of that from a bacterial pathogen that that may be fatal for them rather than the influenza. So the same thing with COVID, that's the concern with this Felix. So these patients have very compromised immune systems, uh, even without a transplant, and they may be more prone to, to poor outcomes. I have a quote here from uh, Dr. Ama Shadalia of the John Hopkins Center for Health Security. And uh, he said the New York Times, actually early in the pandemic, but already patients were not coming in. He said, quote, to have people die, uh, said he warns that we're going to have people die or they are going to get really bad outcomes if they don't get care. Is he right? So, this is one of the things that ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, has been uh, discussing and making us aware of. Uh, and, and it ha doesn't have to do so much with uh, COVID itself, but uh, this delaying care. Right. Uh, and, uh, and that is really the danger. Uh, and there are some guidelines that ASCO has published about prioritization and allocation of resources. But if the patients are not going to go to their checkups, uh, one of the things that we found uh, at the beginning of the lockdown was uh, mammograms were not being done and uh, colonoscopies were not being done. So there, all of these uh, screening procedures that are now going to be done hopefully within the next few weeks. So it, it causes a delay in care and possibly uh, more advanced disease. Uh, I was telling Brum the other night, uh, I had a patient who was scheduled for a mastectomy and uh, it gave her more time to become even more anxious about the surgery. And I spent a long time with her the other day explaining to her that she should not delay. And uh, I did not convince her to go back to the surgeon for that. So, so therein the, the danger as a side effect, if you will, of the COVID pandemic. Right, I'd agree. Uh, I think they're going to, it's a little early for six weeks to say for a lot of diseases, but uh, certainly, um, you know, one of the other limitations in oncology, since there for many diseases may not always be standard therapy. So a lot of patients really look and come to places for clinical trials. And that, that has uh, also been a place where things may be impacted because there's often on clinical trials, even extra visits or monitoring for study related uh, uh, observations. And if you're limiting or their fear to come in to get those done or just the hospital's uh, anxiety about having extra people uh, for, so a lot of the trials have been a little bit slowed down and some of them have been postponed altogether. Uh, but, but it's one thing for six weeks, but if this pandemic is expected to maybe persist for 18 months or more, that can have a major impact on uh, some of these patients' outcomes. An another oncologist wrote uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Lisa Rosenbaum, she's, actually she's a cardiologist, but she was writing and said that because most cancer patient follow-up has been via telehealth, patients are being counseled against normal treatments or have their maintenance therapy suspended? How true has that been in your practices? One of the things that I've been trying to do is uh, deciding whether I can uh, change the regimen a bit to avoid more immunologic uh, side effects. Uh, and uh, one of the other things that was mentioned on that article that you quoted uh, had to do with changing regimens to the oral 
drugs mm. rather than IV. Uh, I, I say it's going to depend per diagnosis and mm -hmm. will depend on the center that the patient is at. Uh, another thing that I was reading this morning uh, had to do with uh, medications that may be in shortage that would be affecting cancer patients in particular. So um, it, it is a very individual choice, and that's something that indeed was uh, mentioned on that article, which uh, I, I appreciate that you brought up. One of the things that has kind of been drawn into national attention is this idea of elective medical care as opposed to essential. And it, mostly the, it gets pointed towards orthopedic procedures that can be <laughs> delayed six, six weeks. But, you know, in, in seeing, at least around here, how much the, the hospital's volume is down, um, I think the, the thing that I've realized is so much of, of medical care patients may perceive as elective, um, but in reality, it is not. You know, I've, I've had the greatest struggles uh, asking patients to get lab work um, for monitoring for medications and whatnot. Um, I don't know if you guys have, is there anything in, in oncology, I guess, that you guys would consider elective? Or would it be safe to say that there's no reason to delay care? Maybe change it, but there's no reason to delay oncology care. Yeah, I, um, I, I'll let Felix answer for his angle as well. But at the, in, in the transplant community, anyway, there are some of our conditions that are more chronic. For instance, plasma cell myeloma or multiple myeloma. And they're very effective therapies for many patients' diseases. And the transplants, one of the therapies on the continuum of their care for many patients. But we've had a number of patients throughout the transplant community, not just in Cleveland, but throughout the, with our other colleagues throughout the country that have uh, sort of offered those patients to delay maybe until June or July as opposed to March, and uh, just to spare them the time in the hospital um, when their immune system will be even more compromised. At, at that point, we didn't know how fast this curve was taking off, um, and, and so th those type of elective procedures were felt safe to, without uh, expected harm for most patients. There are selected cases that need to move quickly, but for, on the other hand, folks with acute leukemias or very aggressive diseases, they, they I agree with you, they, they really need to move sooner than later, but Felix, I'm sure you have your um, uh, uh, feelings about that as well. Yeah, so in the community oncology setting, particularly with solid tumors, as Andrew was mentioning, there are many things in oncology that are not elective in the true sense of the word. Uh, they are not urgent, they're not emergency, it's not a life and death situation acutely, but if you delay the diagnosis that consequently the life-saving uh, adjuvant chemotherapy will not be started on time. Uh, and case in point, the, the lady I mentioned with the mastectomy that now she doesn't want to have, uh, I'm afraid that when she does show up for her next appointment, uh, we will be palpating lymph nodes that are involved that may not have been involved before. So that kind of a thing uh, does affect ultimately the, the overall survival uh, and even the disease-free survival of these patients. So I am, I am concerned, and I hope that once we get used to this new normal uh, in oncology and, and all medical care, uh, those uh, dilemmas will be solved to the benefit of the patients. Do you yeah, think that essential? It's been interesting. Do you think that essential okay. versus elective is a false dichotomy in some circumstances? I, I would as say as far there as medical is. care. 
I would say there is. And, and so that's where uh, our, our colleagues that are not, uh, and I would say the, uh, the people that are not in medicine don't truly understand. And I would say some of the colleagues too. So I, I think the terminology may confuse the patients and will confuse the, the doctors that are not taking care of those specific cases. Uh, when I hear elective, I think of, uh, you know, cosmetic <laughs> surgery, yes. Yes. you know, yeah, yeah. Which, which has a place. But, you know, one angle of this that we have not talked about is is the malpractice side of things. Um, I know in family medicine, one of the things I've been advised is that the number one cause for malpractice is delay in time of referral and delaying Ooh. care. Oncology being obviously a major, a major player there, if I would have been referred to the oncologist or got that colonoscopy six months sooner, maybe I wouldn't have suffered these outcomes. Uh, I know that's something they're debating in, in future coronavirus relief packages is how they address liability, um, especially liability if people get coronavirus. Um, but I, I don't know. I think, I guess the point that I'd like to drive home to our listeners is that even though it may seem elective, um, really going without really standard medical care is, is generally always a bad idea. Another quote from an oncologist in uh, England, Dr. Uh, Lucy Gossage, wrote that we will no doubt see some patients die sooner, not because of coronavirus, but because we are not able to treat their cancers as we would normally. Does that sound extreme or is she onto something? Well, there may, may not be a problem as of yet, but once again, if this pandemic is uh, lasts for longer periods of time, or especially with bigger surges uh, in different areas, um, that, that may uh, certainly be the case for at least a number of conditions if people can't get to their, you know, cancer therapies or follow through on them because a lot of the therapies that we administer are not just a one-time uh, shop like going in to have your gallbladder removed. This is done over months of therapy and if there's major interruptions in therapy, it's been shown that certainly the, the chances of relapse and, and dying are, are not inconsequential. So I think uh, once again, it might be we start in March, we're doing good in March and April, but with a therapy, and then all of a sudden there's a shutdown for the next two months, and these big interruptions in care could potentially be uh, have dire consequences for some patients. Yeah, and another thing that, that Rana and I were discussing the other night had to do uh, with clinical trials, and I know uh, Ron has more information on that, but, but that is another issue. Uh, you know, we're, we're, if we believe the headlines, the only clinical trials that are out there have to do with COVID-19. <laughs> and, and so, but, but we have a lot of clinical trials in, in oncology. And uh, in my particular patients, I have a patient that has been on an NIH clinical trial and, and NIH has been providing the transportation for him. And that trial has not been interrupted. But what I'm concerned about is as the weeks go by and the resources are geared towards infectious disease and not oncology, are we going to see some of those important oncology clinical trials interrupted or not even started at all? Uh, you know, many of these uh, government-driven clinical trials do provide important information. I mean, even things that we were not doing two years ago in immunotherapy, and, and just regular adjuvant therapies that are making major impacts in overall survival of our patients. If we don't conduct them because the resources are being sent somewhere else, well then uh, years down the line, we will see that on our oncology cases. 
Yeah, so much has been given to flattening the coronavirus curve. Uh, but I had a, a friend actually bring up to me the other day about all the other curves that we may need to flatten, you mm -hmm. know, whether it be cancer care or uh, unemployment, flattening the unemployment curve or, or whatnot. You know, one of the things, and, and we'll give you guys kind of a chance to predict the future here. Um, as we transition out of this phase of the pandemic, of this relative lockdown and um, kind of reduced, reduced amounts of care, when do you guys see us kind of getting back to normal as it relates to oncology? Is that a, a two-month program or is that a two-year program? Boy, um, that's hard, hard to predict. The, not the, as we as you alluded to with the flattening of the curve. Uh, if if I think uh, it, even if people go back to you know some of the things, there's still I, I think that that major role for some social distancing and the current precautions, because uh, if those are lightened down, they're completely abandoned. Uh, I, I don't know that it'd be a, a quick two two month or six month turnaround. So I think as as Gradually, society's blended back more in. Um, hopefully, we can main, main, and maintain that effectively. Um, we'd hope that we'd allow more standard oncologic uh, care to resume, but it, it really remains to be seen, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with Ron. Uh, I, I think we will have to wait and see how it happens to all of the patients, oncology or otherwise. Um, I, I, I can see, uh, based on the interaction that I've had with my other oncology colleagues and the radiation oncologists, we're trying to maintain as normal as possible our, our care, uh, varying all these unforeseen circumstances and furloughing of employees. Uh, I, I think uh, oncologists, we're, we're a very peculiar breed, and we, we take... Um, uh, these uh, issues with our patients very, very much to heart. And uh, again, the interaction I've had with my colleagues, even those people that I've been sending to academic centers nearby, University of Miami, in my area, or otherwise, I, I think people are very focused on not losing, not missing the forest for the trees. What have you learned in your practices of oncology uh, during the last six or eight weeks that may change your practice in oncology for years to come for the better? You know, are there any silver linings in there? I think, um, yeah, for me, I, th I think as uh, uh, people of faith, there again, I think it's, it helps us to remind ourselves clearly that we're not in charge. I think in medicine, particularly, we have this Sometimes I, I can do this and this and that, and we've been blessed with lots of advances over the years, but just to remind ourselves that we're not in charge and we're at, uh, really to trust in the Lord's divine mercy and his, his providence. And uh, we need to be ever more resourceful using the gifts he gives us, of course. Uh, we're not alone. He's constantly helping us through each day, but to, to be open to that and to open to different ideas like virtual visits. I mean, uh, six months ago, I don't think that was on most of our radar screen, but it, it was there. And I think the Lord's used that for many to help us to reach people in homes and places that we'd never get to anyway. So I think there are opportunities, but just to be open to, and to have the humility to ask, ask for help, to, to look at other centers and other places, other countries, how are they doing it? Uh, you know, sometimes in America, rightly so, we've been blessed with lots of things, but, but they're going to, even some smaller countries have, you can always learn something from everybody if you just have the humility um, uh, to, 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 to say, I don't know it all, and I'm open to suggestions. Yeah, I, I agree with Ron. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed in, in my own personal professional life has been how 
to be more conscientious of how I rely on, on the teamwork approach to take care of the cancer patient. Uh, sometimes, you know, we, we get this, uh, we get into this bubble. I'm the one running the show as a medical oncologist. I'm the one writing the chemotherapy orders. I'm the one that has the full responsibility of the care. And uh, knowing, even though we have the professional social distancing of not seeing one another at the doctor's lounge and and, and being there, all the colleagues discussing cases, and we've had to do the tumor boards remotely, uh, it, to understand that this is a team approach, uh, to me, has been valuable. Uh, and also uh, the interaction with infectious disease and all the other specialties. I, and, and as Ron was saying, to, to have this global um, uh, outlook, uh, again, uh, we've been very blessed in the United States with all the resources, but to understand that all the other countries are going through things like this, uh, to me has been an opening, um, just as it was an opening to me to join the Catholic Medical Association of, of understanding there were others going through the same uh, spiritual and professional issues that I was going through. Well, the same thing happens here in oncology. I, I think that is a good silver lining. Uh, yeah, the, the Lord always surprises us, uh, and if we're... Uh, let ourselves be surprised by his grace. I think we'll be more equipped, uh, if you will. What, what key messages would each of you like to, to leave with our, our listeners, especially folks that are cancer patients? Yeah, I think uh, as uh, to, to parallel what the church says all the time as well, remember that you're not alone. Um, and that we're always there for you, whether it be virtual or spiritual, various ways. But we need to continue to work together and be open to new approaches and to, to adapt to change. And with uh, really you know, the effective precautions with COVID, it, to reassure patients, at least a lot of people, that it is still safe, as we were mentioning at the beginning of the podcast, to, to come to medical care facilities, especially if you have serious issues. I, I uh, you know, one of my patients is a dear friend. The last six weeks, his life, wife wouldn't really let him come in to get his blood counts checked. And this guy lives on transfusions every couple of weeks. I have no idea how he's doing out there, but she won't let him come in. So it is uh, really a, a, a dissatisfying and a, I think a disservice uh, in that regard. But uh, Felix? Yeah, so th that, that, as we said at the beginning of the uh, show, the, the Ministry of Presence, uh, I, I think uh, we have to continue to give that message to the patients so that they're encouraged. And, and to let them understand that despite all the hysteria of sorts that they will be exposed to in the general media, that um, we are there for them no matter what. Uh, and, and, and that is conveyed, uh, to echo again, this uh, team approach. I, I have to uh, tip my hat to, to the nurses that I work with uh, and even the, uh, my office administrators. Uh, and, and to see and to show them that despite the same concern that we have with checking the temperatures they come in and the mask and the PPEs, to the, I, I want to convey to the patients that, yes, we're, we're doing all of this for you. Uh, we're here to serve you. Other constituencies are concerned about this, especially those closest to cancer patients. In fact, a common question is, you know, when can I hug my husband, wife, daughter, mother, father who has cancer? You know, what advice do you have for those close friends and family of cancer patients? 
Um, I, I think it's still, regardless, uh, to, to remain supportive and take advantages of those uh, opportunities uh, to be, be with. I know it's been difficult for me because my, my parents are older and uh, they have healthcare things, and I, I can see them at a distance sometimes uh, outside, but not to be able to. Uh, so I, I sympathize completely with, with folks, even though they don't have cancer. Uh, but but I think uh, that that presence and time listening and just sometimes with, with smiling even if you can't physically hug somebody constantly I, I think that goes a long way and just taking time to listen I think uh, it, to, to know that they're not alone I think that those are the things I encourage people to keep and, and of course is always uh, the prayer reflection and, and take advantage of a lot of the things that for, for Catholics we've been blessed with lots of online and live stream masses and various programs that I think are a tremendous at, attribute to pull a lot of families together. Yeah, I agree with Ron, and, and I have noticed uh, that from, with my own patients, some of the family members are doing just that. They're the people that are using the FaceTime technologies. And, and another thing, as Ron was saying, uh, for Catholics, my Catholic patients, even though they relate to me, well, I, this was such a weird Easter, they are uh, deriving a lot of solace from that. So if, if we share that with the people that are going through the cancer crisis, uh, whether spiritual or not, uh, I think that's something that is worth uh, underlining. And, and what kind of resources can we give to the patients? I know you, we've quoted several things. Do you have some trustworthy references that you can recommend to listeners re related to cancer care and coronavirus? So I, I, I will have... Um, I suggested to uh, Tom there are some sites that hopefully we'll be able to share on the show notes. Uh, ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, has had a cancer patient-driven website for many years. It's cancer.net. Mm. Uh, also, the uh, National Cancer Institute has a very good uh, educational website called cancer.gov. Gov, I'm sorry. And then the American Cancer Society has uh, cancer.org. So again, cancer.net, cancer.gov, and cancer.org. And I found uh, looking, uh, there's this new website, uh, ccc19.org. That's a COVID and cancer consortium. Oh. And the information there is directed at patients. And let's not forget our nurses. So the ONS, the uh, Oncology Nursing Society also has a very good website. And, and as I was compiling this list, I, I, I'm going to add uh, Dr. Doctor. Uh, <laughs> one thing that I conveyed to Tom the other day, uh, the, the shows that you've had uh, during this whole pandemic, and I, I lost track of how many you've done so far, probably greater than 20, have provided a great community service just not only for us physicians, but uh, for everybody else. So I, I've been directing some of my colleagues to your shows. Uh, so uh, kudos to you. That's very kind of you, Felix. We really appreciate uh, your support. We're, we're trying to do things without being political and trying to be as on target with both the faith and science as we can. Uh, and those uh, references, those sites, I've already forwarded them to uh, Andrea, our producer, so that she can link them to our show notes for listeners Ron, are there any favorite sites you have? 
Um, yeah, I think, well, Felix listed most of them, I think, that are pertinent most to oncology patients and their families. But uh, in addition, for transplant patients, there's a, a group we call ASTCT, American Society of Transplant and Cellular Therapy. They have a separate uh, site called COVID-19 Resource Community. So that, too, is an opportunity for uh, transplant folks to, and their families potentially to tap in. So to, to wrap the episode up, what final comments would you like to leave with listeners of all types? Felix? Uh, I would like to uh, have the faith, hope, and love, these virtues that we Catholics live by. Uh, it, it, it rules for life, right? So I, I think that's uh, important. And, and yesterday, uh, well, we're recording this on Saturday, May the 2nd. Uh, so yesterday was May the 1st. And one thing that I went back to was the rosary, how um, Pope Francis has made such a big stress that we do that every day, uh, especially for us Catholic physicians and Catholic patients and Catholic family members. Uh, let's go to our mother for help. She is there for us. And, and I must say, uh, as, a, as a witness, that during the, these whole six weeks, now probably going on to seven or eight, uh, I have felt that uh, healing hand of Mary uh, with me. And, and so the rosary is uh, going to be my, hopefully I'll keep it as not only a daily devotion during the month of May, but, but for the rest of my life. Ron? Yeah, I think I'd echo that with our, a lot of us with uh, our devotions to the Blessed Mother. And I think back just thinking about uh, 100 years ago with uh, when they had the Spanish flu and the children of Fatima, how uh, two of them uh, succumbed to that. And they didn't have a live stream or anything else. And they uh, offered that up. It was tremendous. Uh, and, and as a seven or eight year old child doing that for the world, I think is, is something to speak of uh, that's still remembered 100 years later. And, and, of course, just coming out of the Easter season with Divine Mercy Sunday, just know that the Lord's mercy and compassion there is for all of us. And uh, we're to be uh, uh, instruments of that mercy to the world, whether in your health care or not, with your family or whoever have you. So uh, just uh, the Lord said to St. Faustino, and he has, he has these rays of mercy are clamoring to be spent, but souls just don't want to come to receive those graces. So, so just to have our be open and, and, and to accepting and uh, he's transformed history and has been throughout every throughout the ages. And I don't think this is any different than, than those, although it's something new to all of us. So I think as, as people of faith and those who may be struggling with the faith, this is an opportunity for all of us to, to look back at life and say really what matters sometimes more with time with our family or uh, or better quality time with our patients, uh, to, you know, just to look for opportunities and be open. Ron, Felix, Ron, thank you so much for being here for our, our cancer patients and friends and family of cancer patients. And thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. 
Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.